following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. It becomes clear how uh, and why the Old Testament is difficult for us, as we will see in the passage this morning. Uh, I've been sharing the first ten chapters really as a, a unit uh, section that focuses on God with us, God uh, dwelling in the midst of their presence in the camp and, 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 and being with them. Um, uh, and as we begin to look at the passage, the first section, God arranges the camp. He sets it up so that the temp- tabernacle is really right in the, in the center of the camp. So in a very visible way, uh, their life is to revolve around God. And he's to occupy the most important honored place in the camp, the very center. And then we looked at uh, the calling of the, the priests and the Levites, setting them aside. And they really served uh, to guard the holiness that was there to protect the people from stumbling where they weren't supposed to and, uh, and God striking out and, and killing them uh, because we, we discovered that God's holiness is like a consuming fire and it's something to be protected and to be handled carefully. And so as we come to chapters 5 and 6, we may be starting to think maybe God with us is not such a great deal. Right? It's like risky and, and, and it could be life-threatening and, uh, and certainly... Uh, there's all this ordeal to make sure God's there, but also to make sure the people don't get too close. Um, now we come to chapters uh, 5 and 6, and it gets even better. Uh, so let's read, we're not going to read all of 5 and 6, but let's read some sections out of it, where there are now even more laws and more regulations and more restrictions about preserving and protecting the camp. So not only is God holy, but in these instructions we see that the camp itself needs to be maintained in the highest level of holiness. Right? So let's read uh, chapter 5, verse 1. As I said, we're just going to pick out some sections here. Um, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put them out, both male and female, putting them outside of the camp, that they may not defile their camp, in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so. And they put Grandma outside the camp in her own tent. This sounds just cruel. Um, As the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. Uh, Then in verse 5, the people spoke to Moses saying, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel when a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be, may, may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priests, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they shall bring to the priest, shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donation, whatever anyone gives to the priest. And then we're going to skip. We are going to talk about the, the woman suspected of adultery, but I'm not going to read it. Uh, we'll come back to it. Uh, Verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat any grapes, fresh or dried, all the days of his separation. He shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall not let the locks of his hair, uh, uh, of his head grow long. And all the days of his separation, uh, that he separates himself to the Lord, 
He shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. Uh, if they die, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head all the days of his separation. He is holy to the Lord. Right, and then finally jump down to um, verse 22. Then finally, after all this, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. <clears throat> Um, so in this, in this passage, we get four rules, four laws about holiness in the camp. Right? Um, if you have a, a skin disease or some kind of discharge or you've contacted a d- dead body, you're required to move out. Move out of the camp. Grandma or whoever, you move out. Right? Um, if you've wronged or cheated your neighbor, you must pay up. Pay up what you owe them. If a woman's been unfaithful to her husband, she is to be cursed. <laughs> and a Nazarite who could not fill his vows has to start over. Okay, that's, in a nutshell, the requirements, right? And when we think about this, um, and, and probably most of us, when we think and read through the Old Testament, when we read through these regulations, they, they seem aren't harsh, unkind, and unloving, right? Anybody disagree with me on this? <laughs> read this and you're like, well, this just seems heartless. Grandma's sick, and now we're going to kick her out of camp, right? Um, not just grandma, but any, and it wasn't every sickness, but a, a leprous disease and certain kinds of discharges. Or if you've touched a dead body, you lose a relative, right? They die, you're, somebody you love dearly dies, and, and you've got to move out. Not permanently, but you're going to be cut off, separated from the camp. It just seems harsh, uh, unloving. The holiness of God is, it seems dangerous and threatening, and it, it appears that what it means for God to be holy is that he is distant and unwelcoming, waiting for us to somehow mess up so he can pounce on us with his wrath. Right? And of course, many preachers who like to preach about like holiness can really go off on this stuff, right? And maybe you've heard sermons like that. Maybe I preached them. I don't know. Um, and so it, picks, it paints this picture of God that... Um, some of it is kind of hard, right? It's hard to imagine this God that's like this. And then, and then there's all these laws, all these laws. And these are just some of many laws that we believe. If you were here through the book of Exodus and Leviticus, you heard all these laws, right? Keep us in line. Keep us from getting zapped unless we mess up, right? So God will get us. Um, and, and we get this idea, and it's easy to kind of create this image that this is the glory of God, right? God is a holy God. He comes down on the mountain in fire. He belts out this voice that shakes the ground, and the people run in terror. It's like God likes to scare small children. He gets his kicks out of this or something, right? And they're like, wow, this is, is this what God's glory is? Right? Is God's glory something that's so awesome and terrible that everybody would run from it? Um, uh, we, we have this vision that, yeah, God is powerful and sinless and perfect, but in that perfection and sinlessness, he is somehow just unapproachable and, and distant, even heartless. Um, but, but somehow this is his glory, right? But then we come to the end of, of, of chapter 6, and we read this amazing blessing. It's like, hope, where, where did this come from, right? He says, the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It sounds, and we'll talk about what these things mean, they sound, they sound lovely, and actually they are. Right? They're actually full of love and grace, grace and tenderness, actually. Right? And, and, and you may read through and you're like, wow, I don't get this. Right? How can God be so seemingly harsh and, and zapping people one second, and then he wants to be gracious and let his face shine on us? sounds so friendly, right? It seems like such a contradiction. Uh, And it really brings up the question, how are we to understand God's holiness and his law that upholds that holiness 
and the desire of God to bless people and to be kind to them. Uh, can we reconcile God's holiness and goodness? Right? His justice and his compassion. Do they go together? Well, for a lot of people, they, 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 they don't see... The, it's, like, it's like two separate gods. Like There's the God of the Old Testament. God was just really angry in the Old Testament. And we don't know what happened. Maybe he went and took some anger management classes and he got better. And then he, he, then he became the God of the New Testament. And he kind of mellowed out some. Well, um, uh, that's just evidence or proof of how we really don't understand the Old Testament or the New, actually. God is unchanging in his character and nature. What he is in the Old Testament, he is in the New Testament. What he is in sending Jesus as a son as our gift, he was in the Old Testament. He's unchangeable. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, the problem is not with God. It's with our understanding of God's holiness and his blessing. So today I want to try to bring these two ideas together. How God can be holy and how his holiness could be such a terrible thing, a frightening and dangerous thing. And at the same time, God is a God of great love and blessing. Is it possible to put these two things together? Well, we'll try today. Right? Let's see if we can do this. Uh, let's start. We're going to start at the very end. We're going to start by talking about the actual blessing of, of God. Let's talk about the good stuff first. Good news first, right? Um, he ends this, this section uh, with these four rules with, with a blessing. And, and it's actually a, a benediction. And it, here at our church, every Sunday at the end of the service, we, we give a benediction. I didn't actually know what a benediction was. I just thought it was some Bible verse you read at the, at the end, but I didn't know what it was. But thankfully, Kimberly Staub straightened me out, and she said, don't you know what a benediction is? I said, I don't know what a benediction is. And she explained it to me very well. And it's really a blessing. Right? So the idea is that before you go out, we bless you as you go out into the world. And that's kind of the goal or focus of a benediction. And, and that's exactly what it's serving here. It's the end of a, of a, a lot of instruction. And so uh, God says, now you need to bless them. And, and actually, when you look at the, the benediction, it's not just chapter 5 and 6 that he's blessing. It's a section that actually goes all the way back to, to Leviticus chapter 1. So let's read Leviticus and... No, 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 no. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, Leviticus 1, all the way through the book of Leviticus, and the first part of Numbers, gives all these instructions. And now the instructions are done. And for us, it's taken us, you know, a year or so to do this. Um, for them, it was a period of a few days. They set up the tabernacle. Uh, uh, about two months later, they leave. And in between, there's a few days where God's giving these instructions, right? So this all happened very quickly for them. And at the end of it, God gives this benediction, this blessing before they go out. He says, you need to bless them. And here's the blessing, Aaron and the priest, that you're to give. It was the role of the priests as the spiritual leaders to speak these words of blessing over the people. And it wasn't a magic potion. It wasn't casting some kind of magic spell. Um, it, it is actually an acknowledgement of the source of blessing. And that source of blessing was God. It says, the Lord bless you. Yahweh bless you. Right? Uh, it's not coming from the priest. The priest can't bless them. It's not some kind of good luck charm. It's, it's, it's invoking God to pour out his goodness and his blessing on them, on the whole people, the whole community, to work and to act in order to bring about good things in the lives of his people. Um, and, and blessing is, is essentially God's abundant goodness and care. Right? Uh, if we feel blessed, we, we feel that we've been well taken care of. Things are good in our life. And so that's what God's blessing indicates. Um, it really points all the way back to the garden. When God created the Garden of Eden, uh, it was not just a, a mediocre place. It was not just kind of an okay place. It was a place that was blessed in every way. God was there, and he made sure that everything was provided for Adam and Eve and what he hoped would be mankind to live there in, in blessing. It also looks forward. For the Israelites, it looks forward to the fulfillment of God's promises to give them a land and a kingdom. And ultimately, it looks forward to God's ultimate promise to give us eternal glory and eternal life. Uh, that's a blessing, the ultimate blessing, right? Um, and so, so he, says, he says to them, the Lord bless you. Like the Lord give his goodness to you. The Lord keep you, right? Uh, keep you, his idea of preserving and protecting, that he would carry them and hold them near so that they would be safe on the journey. 
the Lord make his face to shine upon you. Uh, this is kind of a strange idiom, but we don't use this. Um, you know, may, 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 may my face shine on you, right? What does it actually mean? Well, uh, face is, is uh, an idea of presence. Okay, for God's face to be near is a very idea of his very presence to be near. If I say, you know, I'm, I'm with you, my thoughts are with you, it means I'm, I'm, I'm with you in, in, in spirit, right? Uh, but it was even more than that for God. It was actually his glorious presence somehow with them, shining forth his benevolence, looking with kindness and favor on his people. It also has the idea of taking pleasure, delighting in his people. Some translations actually translate this, may God smile on you. Right? And that's the idea of God delighting in his people. Right? Um, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Uh, some people, there's like, what? I didn't know this was in the Old Testament. Right? Actually, the word grace and gracious derivatives are found quite often in the Old Testament. God was a God of grace in the Old Testament. Right? He didn't discover grace you know, sometime when Jesus came. He was always a God of grace. His covenant with them was, was based on grace. And grace describes the attitude um, that issues in kindly action of a superior to an inferior in which the inferior person has no claim or right on the superior to give them anything. In other words, it's given freely from one who has a lot who's above, who's in a position above, to someone below them. And it's not out of duty or obligation. There's no claim upon the lower person for it. It's, it's a gift. Okay, that's God. He, he is gracious in his dealings with his people. Again, another expression about his face, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Uh, it really is a picture of God's goodness and, and again, favor and care. Um, uh, to, to, when, when God hid his face, it was bad. It means that he was not paying attention. He was not helping you. And so to lift up his face means that God's present and he's interested and he's helping. He's showing you his compassion. Um, and then there's this word, this amazing word, peace. Uh, the Hebrew, it's the word shalom, right? Shalom. Hebrew word shalom means peace. And it was a greeting. Uh, they would greet, greet one another, shalom. And it was a wish, it was a blessing of peace on people's life. Um, what, what exactly did they mean by this peace, this shalom? Well, it, it meant generally... Uh, the completion and fulfillment of something, of entering into a state of wholeness and uni unity and restored relationship. Uh, we think about peace, uh, if you have a fight with somebody and you, you make it up, you, you're at peace with that person. But the idea of shalom goes way beyond just human relationships. And it has the idea that everything in your life is in right order. Things are just good. Right? Life is good. And you have shalom. You have the shalom of God. Um, his peace and goodness and everything about life is just right and good. There's joy in shalom because right? life is good. Uh, and finally he says uh, this blessing, he says you shall put uh, this blessing and, and so shall they put, that is the priest, put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. This is amazing. God says I want my very name to rest on them. And his name is representative also of his presence that I want to be with them. I do want to be God with us. God in their midst. God very real and present in their life. Uh, but it also has the idea of belonging. Right? My children have my name because they're stuck with me. Right? That's what a family is. We share a name together. We belong to each other as family. And so it's this picture of, uh, of God saying, these are my people. I belong to them and they belong to me. We are family. And I will bless them. And here's something we have to know and understand and believe with all our heart. That God's greatest heart and desire for you and I is blessing. Blessing. He is a good God who wants the very best in your life. Do you believe that? I believe it here. <laughs> oh yeah, I can say that. I can say I believe those words. I don't know that I really believe it in the depth of my being. But... Uh, because I know I, I don't deserve it, right? 
And I'm not really convinced that God is really a God of grace. That he would just freely give me what I don't deserve. And I know what I deserve is punishment and bad stuff, right? So when bad things happen to me, I say, well, I just got what I deserve, right? That's, that's how it is with God. He's holy, and I'm getting that holy zap, right? Because I'm not really convinced God wants more than anything else to bless my life. But he says, like, I will bless them. And he's saying this to a people who we're going to see in a few chapters here are going to mess up terribly, terribly. I mean, these people prove to be the most stubborn, bullheaded, obnoxious group of people. But God says, I will bless them. And he does. He does, right? All right, so, so this is God's heart, right? Um, God is a God, even in the Old Testament, is a God of compassion, love, and blessing. Right, so how do we reconcile then this whole thing with this holiness and zapping people and keeping your distance and, you know, scary God? How do we put those things together? Uh, what is the connection between, between holiness, law, and blessing? Well, real quickly, uh, and I have a lot of time to explain this, and I probably won't just... just be able to explain it very well, but I'll try. Uh, the bottom line is this. Holiness is the blessing. Holiness is the blessing. Okay, holiness is all that is good and right about God. Okay, it is that he's sinless. It is that he is pure and perfect. But it is also that he is the perfection of goodness and rightness. Okay, God never does anything wrong. Right? And so he's holy because everything he does is just right about him. All of his decisions, all of his actions, all of his thoughts, all of his intentions um, uh, is, is perfect, right? And, and so there's a very sense that God's holiness is the epitome, is the, the pinnacle and climax of shalom, right? God is at peace. Everything is right and good and whole and fulfilled in God's being. He, he's not trying to create something more to happen in his life that's missing. Because he is everything to himself. He, he's, he's the whole package. And it's all good with him. So God himself is holiness and he is shalom. And they're the same thing. They're not separate or divided things. And, and so God wants to be with them. He wants to live in their midst as, as holiness, as shalom, as his presence with them that he himself is the greatest gift. Um, and it's a good reminder that God's blessing is ultimately not his gifts, but it's the giver. Right? Uh, if, if we as parents thought, you know what, my kids need is lots of stuff, and I'm going to show my, my kid love by buying them everything they ever want. In fact, I'm going to even buy them a bunch of stuff they don't want or certainly need. And we just pour, and we think that's blessing them. Well, there's a lot of reasons why we know that's not blessing, right? And ultimately, what a child needs is not our stuff. They need you, right? What they need is a relationship with a father and mother, parents who care about them, right? Same thing with us, right? The ultimate blessing is God himself. And, and so the way this works, um, we've, we've got God's holiness, which is shalom, and it, is, it actually is his blessing, and God wants to give it and bring it into our life. But where does law come into this? How does law help us connect with the holiness and blessing of God? Well, here's where we oftentimes uh, get things turned upside down. And, and the problem is we, uh, I, I maybe mean, this is not you, this is me. I often tend to think that blessing and holiness are two very different commodities. And the way I think of it is this. I think what, what holiness is, holiness is what God wants. Like, God's got this agenda about not sinning and not having fun and, you know, having a boring life because apparently that's what holiness is. And so that's what God wants, right? And over here on this other side, I have what I want, which is blessing, which I think in terms of getting the stuff I want and having a comfortable, easy life, right? Now, does anybody not want a comfortable, easy life? If you raise your hand, you're lying, right? Because we all want, of course we want this, right? We don't want hardship and suffering. I want, I want comfort and I want good things, right? And we think that somehow these two things are two different worlds apart, what God wants and what I want. And, and we, we tend to think of law as, as um, what we must do 
to get God on His part to give us what we want on our part. Right? If I'm obedient, if I check off the list of all the things that God wants, then He'll give me what I want. Right? So it's kind of like an employer-employee relationship. I get a job and I work 40 hours a week for so many dollars per hour and I get wages. Right? What the employer wants is my labor. What I want is, is paycheck, wages. And those two things really aren't related. Right? The work I do and the money I get are not the same thing. They're very different. Um, and, and some people you know, learn how to work hard to get wages, but honestly, some people have learned how to not work at all and still get wages, right? But if you're one of those people, watch out, right? Uh, but we all have worked with people like that, right? When the boss shows up, man, they're all, they look spiffy. As soon as the boss walks out the door, man, they're checked out, right? And you're doing all their work, right? Um, and so there's really not actually a direct relationship between the wages and the work. And in fact, uh, you can do many different kinds of work, but the wages, it's all the same, right? You still get money as a wage. Uh, so there's, a, there's a, a, an inherent disconnection, and it's really a commercial enterprise. It's economics, right? I give somebody what they want, and they give me what, 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 we, what, I, what I want, and, and money or currency is the exchange that makes that possible. Uh, you could think about it in terms of a purchase. You go into a store and you want a new pair of shoes. That's what I want. What the seller wants is cash. So we give them cash, what they want, and I get the shoes that I want. But the shoes and the cash are not really related in any way. Right? They're not the same thing. They're very different things. Um, and so we, we tend to think of blessing in the same way. Right? I give God what he wants and I get what I want, and they're not at all connected or the same. They're different things, just inherently different things. But that's just not true. The fact is that uh, holiness and blessing and, and the law that makes those things come together are in, inherently connected in the same. Uh, what I, and I couldn't come up with a better, easier way to say this, but, but essentially... Uh, Obedience is an inherent condition of blessing. And I'll explain what that means. I'll try to explain it. Obedience is an inherent condition of blessing. Let me carefully explain that. Okay? Um, what I mean is this. Holiness and blessing are the same because they're both rooted in God's goodness and His, His perfection, His rightness. Uh, the laws then are are conditions inherent in receiving, connecting with that blessing. So here's an example. Because I know all those words don't mean anything, right? Like, I'm always talking about inherent. Here's an example. Uh, sleep is an inherent condition of rest. Okay, they're the same thing. Sleep and rest are very much connected. They're not separate things like shoes and money. Sleep and, and rest are very much the same thing. And you can't have rest without sleep. Mike can say amen to that because he just got off a plane. He's on jet lag. And uh, he's not rested because he's been up. You know. Sleep and rest, they, they, they must go together. Not because it's some kind of commercial exchange. Like if I get eight hours of sleep, I can cash that in on rest. No, they're, they're, they're linked. It's an inherent condition of rest. Um, you can use the same illustration in farming. Preparing the soil and planting seeds is inherent in getting a harvest. They're the same thing. They're not different things. And we know that because if you go and you, 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 you prepare the soil and you put in corn seeds, you're not going to get zucchini. Right? There's a connection. There's a link. There's something inherently conditioned. That if you want to get corn, you've got to plant corn. Right? right so, so that's what he's talking about here. That that holiness and blessing are inherently connected and law is what connects them. These rules and instructions are the path to walk into shalom. Right? Not as an exchange because I did it and God owes me, but because it's inherent. It's an inherent condition to experiencing shalom in our life. Okay, so let's, I know you're still confused and I am too. That's okay. But let me look at this in these four, in these four examples in chapter 5 real quickly. Don't have a lot of time, but I'm just going to touch on them and, and see if we can illustrate how the law is blessing. When you, when you fulfill and walk in obedience to the law, 
you will be blessed because it is what the blessing is. That holiness is the blessing. First one, uh, chapter 5, he says, you know, to kick out the sick people. All those people with leprosy and all those people with some kind of bodily discharge, whatever that is, I don't even want to know. Uh, and he touched dead people, right? Um, and what he's talking about here is really the blessing of good health. Right? Good health is a blessing. Uh, and bad health is always, always, always a result of sin. And not necessarily your sin, right? Because you got a cold doesn't mean because you, you, know, you, you screamed at your kids this morning and therefore you get a cold. It's not, it doesn't work that way. But, but the, the, the wage of sin is death. Right? When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, when we sin, we open the door to brokenness in our physical bodies. And we are all in the process, slowly, of dying. Right? And death is the ultimate sign or mark of, of that sickness, that brokenness in our bodies that's brought about because of sin. Right? Sin, sin uh, wrecks and breaks uh, our, our physical body. And, and here's the thing. You cannot experience the fullness of blessing in a broken, sick body. Amen, right? I, when I got back from the States, I, I had a cold. I was not feeling blessed, right? It was just miserable. And it's hard to be happy and have joy when uh, your nose is just like a fire hydrant. Just the time, right? Sorry for being gross. Bodily discharge. Don't talk about that. Um, right? And it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter if you have the nicest house in the world with every comfort and luxury. If you're sick, you can't get comfortable. Right? You can't. Why? Because health is inherent in blessing. It is a condition of blessing. Inherent in shalom. And so God says the camp needs to be a holy place, a place where everything is right and as it should be, including a place of bodily, physical health. Right? And he wasn't kicking people out of the camp because he's mean or, or doesn't have a heart. Certainly they could take care of the people. And, and, and there was a process for when they got better to come back into the camp. But the idea is that sickness and death are signs that things are not right. And God's vision is that life would be right even in our physical bodies. Uh, there's also a practical side to it. By quarantining the sick, it prevented the spread of contagious diseases to the rest of the community. Right? It isolated them. Right? We would do the same thing if it was contagious. Right? Because uh, physical health is inherent to uh, blessing. Um, and that's true not in the, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Uh, Isaiah 53.5 tells us that, that Jesus is our healer. But he, that is Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. There's that word, shalom. Right? Jesus took our sins so that we could have shalom, peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We are healed. Right? Uh, Jesus came to deal with sin and all of its, co- all of its consequences including sickness and death. Now, of course, uh, the ultimate fulfillment of that promise is not in this life or in this world. We will, we will get sick, and, and unless Jesus comes back, we will all die. But the good news is that we will be resurrected to new life and a new body that will be perfect health. Right? And that will be the blessing of God in our life. A second thing he talks about is uh, if, you, if you've wronged your neighbor. You've done something to break the relationship with your neighbor. And so the second thing that he calls them to is to restored relationships. And the same thing is true here, right? We know this. When, when our relationships with our friends or neighbors or co-workers or our family are strained or broken or fractured because of misunderstanding, if we have said or done something wrong that's hurt them, or if somebody's said or done something wrong that's hurt us, that is not a state of shalom. Literally, right? The peace is broken, and we feel not blessed. And uh, in my work with missionaries on our staff and in other places, I'm just amazed at how well people are at not getting along. (laughs) Uh, It's mind-boggling. And I, I just recently, a few months ago, I worked with uh, 
two friends, two friends of mine, uh, both in ministry, uh, who so destroyed their relationship that, that they were threatening of suing each other and sending each other to jail. And I'm like, what is going on here? Right? How could you say that? And, and both of them claimed the power of the gospel. I'm going, man, you're missing something. Something is not right here, right? And there was no blessing in their life. And sadly, uh, for so many people, those relationships are never restored. They're never fixed. And God says, look, you can't have shalom, you can't have peace if you have fractured, broken relationships, right? If you show up at 7-Eleven and that person is also in 7-Eleven and you turn and walk out the door, right? That's not shalom. That's not blessing. That's not peace, right? And, and it's interesting, he says, he says this, he says, um, when a man or woman commits any sin, and he means against another person, he wrongs another person, he does that uh, by breaking faith with the Lord. Right? Not only, we see, when we have conflict with a brother or sister, a neighbor, a friend, family, it's not only with that person, but it affects the community, and it ultimately is breaking faith with God, because God loves that person. And, and he has made every means to reconcile himself with that person. And if we do not, and if we do not take the steps to reconcile, we have broken faith with God. Right? And so he says when you, when you when, and he gives this process, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but real quickly, he says uh, when, when you realize it, uh, and this is the process, first says realization of guilt, you realize you have hurt somebody. You've, you've harmed them. You've done something against them. The next thing you do is you are to confess that sin, that it was wrong, that you were in error. Thirdly, they were to pay restitution. Right? And what this meant was if you accidentally ran over your neighbor's dog, uh, and you didn't really think much about it because the dog annoys you, and so you're like, oh, the dog had it coming. Uh, and then a week or two later, you're like, oh, you know, I'm guilty. Because that was my friend's dog. And so you, you feel bad. So you make restitution. You confess. You, you confess to that person, you know, it was me. I'm the one who ran over your dog. And I feel really bad. And, and I want to I make it right. So you pay restitution. So it's, the way it worked in the Bible is you were to pay the value plus 20%. Right? So that means you give them like a big dog and a puppy. No, because then they'll really hate you, right? But you give them the value, the value plus 20%. You, you, you go overboard to, to make amends and to fix the problem. Right? You, you take steps to correct what you have done to hurt them. And, and to go beyond that to show them your heart and your goodwill to restore and reconcile the relationship. And finally, they were to bring a, an offering, a ram to the priest to make atonement, a sacrifice the blood, because they had broken not only faith with the person, but with God. And so they need atonement, they need forgiveness in their relationship with God. But of course, that's Old Covenant. We are under the New Covenant that we celebrated in communion. And now, uh, the first three things are true for us. When we realize we've wronged a brother, we've hurt them, we've done something against them, we need to confess it. Uh, we need to go and make it right with them, whatever it takes, and however long it takes, we need to reconcile and restore that relationship. Uh, but praise God, we don't have to make atonement. Jesus has done that. And in his atonement is also the power of reconciliation. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, having been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, our shalom, our reconciliation. Jesus is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Love that picture. Jesus, through his death on the cross, has shattered the things that divide us by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
Here's the thing is we can't be true followers of Christ and be living under his grace and forgiveness and be holding resentment and bitterness and hostility towards our brother. To do so is to not forfeit your salvation, but it is to forfeit blessing. Because that is inherent. It's an inherent condition of experiencing God's blessing in our life. You're not feeling blessed. You're not experiencing God's blessing in your life. It could be because there are fractured relationships that you have not dealt with. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you are offering your gift at the altar, you go into church and you're worshiping God, you're trying to praise and honor God, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. You've wronged your brother somehow. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. You see, we can't really give God worship that he deserves. We cannot glorify and honor him if we have not dealt with these human relationships. You see, God is honored. His holiness is displayed. And we are blessed when we live in in reconciled, restored relationships with each other. It's essential to the Christian life. Um, The next one is a very confusing passage that uh, we just do not have time to go into. Um, uh, But it's about moral purity. And the scenario is that a husband is suspicious that his wife has been unfaithful to him. That she's uh, had intimate contact and relations with another man. Uh, And so she's violated her her marriage covenant. Uh, and, And the case could be that she is guilty or the case could be that she's not guilty the problem is there's no proof or evidence. The man just feels suspicious. He just feels like there's something wrong. And there's this whole long, kind of bizarre uh, process of bringing her before the Lord, and you drink uh, dirty water with uh, ink from the words of a curse, and you promise that uh, you make an oath, and, and if, if you're guilty, you promise to receive the curse of God where you will... Your health will fail and you won't be able to have children. But if you're innocent, God will vindicate you and you'll be childbearing and healthy. Right? And we read this and we're like, wow, there's just something really wrong with the Old Testament. Um, there's a lot there and we, can't, we just can't explain it all. But, but, but let me just say that in general some things about it. Um, a lot of times we think, well, why is the woman getting picked on here? Well, it really wasn't picking on her. Actually, it was a concession to protect her. Uh, in, in that culture and in that day, men could accuse their wives and oftentimes they didn't need proof. And sometimes the consequences were devastating. They, she could be stoned to death. And this ensured that that could not happen. Right? That a man could not just on a whim say, well, I just feel like she's been unfaithful. Take her on stoner. Right? It was actually protecting her. Uh, and it was putting the case before God and in God's hands. And it was saying, God, you're the judge who knows all things. We trust you to bring about justice to do what's right. If she's guilty, you know, and and you will deal with her. If she's innocent, you know, and you will deal with her appropriately, right? But um, aside from all the complications of this passage and what what, what it's going on here, um, it, it highlights the importance of faithfulness in marriage as the foundation of a strong and healthy relationship. And again, this is blessing, right? Uh, if you have ever gone through a season in your marriage of strife and, and, and uh, disagreement and, and frustration, you know it's not blessing. Right? It is not blessing. It is a blessed thing to enjoy uh, a marriage relationship as God intended it, where it's supportive and encouraging and full of love. But where there is mistrust and suspicion and misunderstanding and unfaithfulness, it shatters that union and it, it wipes out blessing. Uh, when, when, when trust and commitment in marriage is broken by immorality or marital unfaithfulness, there will certainly not be the experience of blessing in the home. Uh, and this is true not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. And it's not about abstract holiness. Right? It's not about a morality that's just out there that doesn't connect with real life. God says, no, my moral limits connect to your everyday life. It's, it's connected to blessing. It has very much to do with real life and, and it's inherent to a happy marriage that you are morally pure and faithful to your spouse. 
But here's the problem, and I get this. Uh, a lot of God's blessings we get, the whole thing about physical health in our body, we get that. Like if you're sick and not feeling well, we know that's not blessing. But the problem is that when it comes to moral purity, we don't believe it's true. We think God's confused. Right? And the reason is because of the desires of our own sinful flesh and the culture and world around us that tells us, no, right? The Bible's wrong, got this wrong, right? This is that whole holiness is God's agenda. And what's really blessing for you is something very different, right? And if you don't indulge in, in all the worldly immorality that's available for you today, that, that Satan is calling you to, the, the, the belief is we're, we're not going to be really blessed. We're going to be missing out on something really good. And the world and society says, yeah, absolutely, that's right. You know? uh, and it's a matter of faith to trust that God's holiness is good. Right? That he created us and he wrote the instruction manual. Do you ever get an appliance, electrical appliance? I bet all of you do this, right? First thing you do, you get out of the box and you set it up and it's all shiny and bright. And the first thing you do is you flip through the instruction manual to that warnings and, and you know, how to use page, right? Right? Well, of course not, right? You throw that book away because who needs that, right? But, uh, but it's actually important. Like there's the, you know, there's the little thing that says, you know, your hair dryer, don't use it in the shower, right? There's reasons for that. And the manufacturer actually is aware of those reasons. And there, it's a warning to you that it will be really bad for the hair dryer and may not be so well for you either if you take that electric appliance into the shower. Right? Um, it, it, it would be wise to pay attention to the manufacturer's warnings. Well, well, well that's God's holiness. That's his, his instructions about moral purity. He made us. He knows how to protect us. And his warnings to keep yourself morally pure are to protect your heart and your body and your soul and to bring blessing. We may not believe it. We have to accept by faith that God knows what he's talking about. Ephesians 5.3 and this goes not just for mar- in marriage but as a single person. Married or not, right? Moral purity is inherent. It's an inherent condition of God's blessing of knowing joy and peace in your life. Ephesians 5.3 says this, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, wanting what other people have, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints, right? These are for for our benefit. All right, last one. Um, And by the way, on on all of these, right, if there's moral impurity, if if you have sinned, if there's... uh, and one of the one of the great risks of, of of sexual sin is it's addictive, it's deeply addictive, and we don't handle it well. It can become a cruel slave master. Um, but there's good news, right? There there is grace. Uh, may the Lord make make His face shine upon you and give you grace. In Jesus, there is grace, right? And I love in, in Galatians five nineteen and twenty. Uh, Paul gives one of many lists of sins. He likes listing sin. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, amen. (laughs) Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, all those evil things, right? Enmity. That means not getting along with people. Strife. That means not getting along with people. Jealousy. Fits of anger. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Here's the thing. Paul says that being uh, sexually immoral and being an argumentative person are in the same category. It's sin. It's sin, right? And we may think that, well, I don't, I'm not a, I don't worship or I'm not involved in sexual immorality, so, so I don't need grace and forgiveness. But John uh, writes in 1 John 1, 9 through 10, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We've all sinned. We all need grace. We all need forgiveness. And praise God, he joyfully gives it to us. We're out of time. Uh, The last one has to do with the Nazarite vow. It has to do with devoted service. 
Um, God says here that, that, that God is worthy of our greatest worship, and the greatest worship we can give him is our very life. And so he made a way for them to make a vow to give themselves for a period of time to sacred service to God. And in that they couldn't eat any kind of wine, they couldn't eat grapes, they couldn't eat raisins, they couldn't do, have anything to do with grapes. Um, which would be like telling a Thai, people, a Thai person you can't eat rice. <laughs> and, and what it meant is they weren't to participate in and be conformed to everyday life. Right? They were to set a, themselves aside from the normal activities of life. And, and normally in the Bible where we see the Nazarite vows, they're, they're serving God. As a mark of that, they could not cut the hair on their head. It would be an easy one for me, because nothing's growing there anymore. Uh, they couldn't cut their hair, and it became a mark or a symbol. And you'd see them, and you'd go, oh, that guy's, that guy's devoting his life in service to God, because he hasn't cut his hair for a long time. And, and they could not touch dead. Again, it, they couldn't defile themselves, because they were holy to the Lord. Uh, but what happens if uh, you know, you're walking along, and, and, and your friend stumbles and hits his head and falls and, and he, he dies right there in your arms. What do you do? You just, disqualify, you just disqualified yourself from the vow. And so he, he makes a way and he explains the process for uh, recommitting and making right that vow. Um, and, and the point here is that uh, it is, it, there is great blessing in devoted service to God. Right? It is a good thing. And so Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Uh, there is no joy in living for yourself. There is no blessing in living to gratify your own desires and getting your own way and seeking only your own glory and your own comfort. There is incredible joy in serving God and living to help others. Jesus himself said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for for many. Uh, These are blessing. They're not separate. They are the blessing. And and we could go through all the commands of God and we would find it to be true. This is how we experience God's blessing in our life by being holy as he is holy through the power of Christ. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.